Good morning. We will we be reading from Romans 3, 1 to 18. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteous our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? By if through my lie God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the reading of God's word. It's so good to be back with you this week. It was quite hard for Leighton and I last week to be driving in the opposite direction of where we wanted to be, and yet we had a fantastic time with the Grace Bible Church in Neilburg, where we were able to set in elders there from our church plant. It's so exciting then to look forward to what God is going to do next. We are back in Romans this week. And in order to understand what Paul is conveying in this part of the letter to the Roman church, we need to keep in mind what he has been responding to and how his argument has been developed up to this point. And so if you can recall with me, if you were here, uh, some people had been distorting the gospel Paul preached. They were slandering him by claiming that his law-free gospel was a message that promoted sin. And some Jewish Christians in Rome likely still viewed themselves as superior to their Gentile brothers and sisters. They had grown up with the Word of God. They had grown up knowing all the rules. And they believed that Gentile Christians needed something more than just the gospel of grace in order to live godly lives. And to understand the situation correctly... Paul's purpose has been to help his readers recognize that outside of God's grace communicated in the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles are in the exact same boat. Both have rebelled against God's commands, whether they knew them well or not. 
And so sin is a serious problem for every human being, whether they are Jewish, having the law and covenant of God, or a Gentile who had never even heard of the God of the Bible. And so it begins, I'll read verses 1 to 8 again, what, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may justify in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why, and why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? And so in uh, following chapter 2, the obvious question is, what then advantage has the Jew, or what value is circumcision? This is the natural question to raise in light of Paul's previous arguments. There's this uh, forceful diatribe in chapter 2, concluding with a radical statement, Romans uh, 2, 28 to 29, where Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter." And so Paul teaches that being an ethnic Jew, even with the covenant sign of circumcision, was no guarantee of entrance into the kingdom of God. And this would have been shocking to the Jews in Rome. This would have left them asking the obvious question, if anyone at all could now become a member of God's people, if anyone can get in on this, if circumcision doesn't matter, if ethnicity doesn't matter, if keeping the law doesn't matter, if anyone can get in on this, is there now any advantage to being a Jew? It would seem that Paul was implying that there was no advantage at all. So, is there an advantage? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, it sounds like he's beginning a list. He says to begin with, and then the list does not progress beyond this initial benefit, although it may be that he picks up this list again in chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. He continues in the benefits there. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. God did choose the Jews out of all mankind and did bestow special privileges upon them. Uh, to reduce them then to the level of other nations is either to accuse the Old Testament of falsehood or to accuse God of failure to carry out His plans. The Bible is very clear 
And so Paul does not make this mistake, but in accordance with the Old Testament, as the Word of God, he recognizes that the Scriptures themselves witness to the election of Israel as God's special covenant people and promised them salvation. For now, the benefit list begins and ends, verse 2, with being entrusted with the oracles of God. To Israel was entrusted the very words of God, and this is a great advantage. And those words included very wonderful promises to God's people, and another fantastic advantage. So they had the very words of God, and they had the covenant, the, the promises of God as God's people. And so, even though the oracles of God is a comprehensive way of describing the Old Testament, Romans 3, 3 suggests that the promises of salvation for Israel are uppermost in Paul's mind. He says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may justify in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul has been saying all along here that the Jews failed to follow or obey the law that God gave them. So, does that faithlessness invalidate God's promises? Of course not. God's faithfulness does not depend on the faithfulness of His people. <laughs> Thank God, right? Because if God's promises depended on the faithfulness of His people, there would be no hope. Let God be true, though everyone else were a liar. God is not man, Numbers 23, 9, that He should lie. This is a confessional truth about God. This is what makes Him God. He remains true to His promises. God's plan for Israel will be accomplished in spite of the fact that they are guilty for their failure to keep His law because God is always completely true to His Word. Here, here's where the pessimism Paul conveys about humanity and the universality of sin comes into play. The only explanation for any Jews at all being included in the covenant is God remaining true to His promises despite the sin that plagues even Jews. The reference then to some being unfaithful here, he, he says, what if some were unfaithful? And this implies that there were others who were faithful, those who, like Paul himself and all the uh, earliest Christians who had responded positively to the gospel and accepted the Jewish Messiah, which was promised in the Scriptures. And so this was not a perfect law-keeping that Paul describes here, or, or merely a failure to keep the law that constitutes Israel's unfaithfulness, but their failure to own Christ as king and to give Him the allegiance that they owed Him. So they're unfaithful in keeping the law, but they're unfaithful in that they did not even recognize who their king was. And so then Paul quotes in verse 4 from Psalm 51, where David is confessing his sin of adultery and murder, and he's asking God for mercy. And then in verse 4, Psalm 51, 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David essentially says to God, whatever punishment you bring, 
You will be justified in what you say and in what you do. When we acknowledge our sin, we are also acknowledging that God is right in passing judgment on us for sins. If we, if we think that we can just acknowledge our sins and then God should just ignore it because we've, we've somehow, by saying so, it can just be passed over, we fail to understand the impact of sin in life and the holiness of our God. And so when we acknowledge our sin, we're not just saying, yeah, I messed up, please, please ignore that part, we'll, we'll move on again, but we're acknowledging that God is righteous in passing judgment on us for our sins, that He is always just in His judgments. That's what David is saying to God here. You are justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. And that's the point David is making in the psalm. He's acknowledging the fact that God has every right to condemn him. God is always true to His Word, not only when He blesses people according to His promises, but also when He visits judgment upon them for their unfaithfulness and disobedience. And this is key here to understand the message Paul's sharing, that God is faithful, He will keep His promises. But He also many times promises judgment for unfaithfulness. How will God do both of these things? How will He keep His promise to those who are unfaithful and at the same time keep His promise to bring judgment for unfaithfulness and disobedience? The unfaithfulness of the Jews in failing to keep the law and not having faith in the Messiah will not nullify the faithfulness of God. He will be faithful despite their lack of faith, and this will be seen in two ways. First, and we see this in the immediate context here of the Psalms quotation, God remains faithful to the terms of His covenant with Israel when He imposes judgment upon them for unfaithfulness. This is part and parcel of God's promise. The covenant with Israel was when they were unfaithful, they would come under judgment. Second, God also promised to save a people for Himself. And the plan of God will not be derailed by Israel's unfaithfulness. God will be faithful to His covenant. All Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six. Now, this is not saying that all of Abraham's descendants will be saved. Remember, Abraham has a son before Isaac, and he is not a son of the promise. And then Isaac has two sons, twin boys, and before either had done anything, one of them was the son of the promise and the other was not. So God did not promise to save every one of Abraham's offspring, but He promised to save an offspring. He promised to keep his covenant with Abraham's descendants into perpetuity for eternity. And so all Israel will be saved in Romans is through the addition of Gentile believers to those Jews who after being broken off from the people of God were grafted back into Israel, Romans 11.23, if they do not continue in their unbelief. So there's, there's a massive foreshadowing of Romans 9 to 11 here, and this is so necessary for us. We're doing the tough slog here this morning because later in Romans, we get into the, the deeper and harder passages of Romans, and they will become easy for us if we believe what God is saying here. 
But if we can't understand what God's saying here in, in the, the easy stuff, and you're looking at me like I'm crazy, but this is the easy stuff, and as we get into the, the more difficult stuff, we need to understand this, that the faithfulness of God is such that He will still save a full Israel despite Jewish unbelief and rebellion. He will keep His promises in both aspects. He will keep for Himself a people, a, a, a people reserved for Himself, His own inheritance, the apple of His eye, the people He loves. He will do that, and at the same time, He will judge the unfaithful and the unbelieving. So God's faithfulness cannot be confined only to His saving work. God is also faithful to His promise to judge the wicked. You see why this is so important, that we understand that God does judge the wicked? Because if God did not judge the wicked, how would we trust any of His other promises? He's promised so many things, and many of them we have to believe by faith because we don't see them yet. Many of them are things for the future, for eternity. So one of the most important things that God has to do for His people in order to bring us through faithfully is to show us that He does indeed punish and discipline and judge. And so the faithfulness of God is not confined to His saving work, but also He is faithful to His promise to judge the wicked. In other words, the saving righteousness of God does not rule out His judging righteousness. And so even though God has promised to save all of Israel, what Paul is saying is that no individual Jew should presume upon these promises and think that their salvation is guaranteed, that they are automatically counted among that number. The same also goes for those today in the church. Just because I call myself a Christian, just because I attend a church because I was baptized, doesn't mean I should presume upon the promises of God. Am I walking faithfully? Am I walking in belief? What follows are the slanderous accusations of Paul's detractors because to them this message doesn't make sense. And so as you work through Romans, as you read through Romans, if if it doesn't make sense, just look at and see what kind of questions Paul's opponents are asking and and ask, is that the question that I have as well? Because quite often it is. So this is the first question that comes. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Again, Paul is defending here the apostolic gospel, the good news of salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And so his opponents in Rome have attempted to discredit him and undermine his gospel by saying that it it applauds lawlessness and it rejects morality. Because of Paul's emphasis on divine sovereignty in salvation, that God alone saves, and it's God's action, not a combination of our action and God's action, but it emphasizes the total inability of humans to keep God's law, then his opponents accuse him of endorsing sin. Some Jews believe that people were granted the, uh, the ability to obey the law 
when God gave them free will. So now when God gives you free will, now just choose the right thing. And they believed that they could do that. They could just choose the right thing and, and that would work out for them. Just, just keep the law. Okay, everybody? Just do better. But what Paul implies in chapters 1 through 3 and then makes explicit in Romans 8, 5 to 8 is that human beings are unable to keep God's law and therefore God's electing grace is their only hope for salvation. Paul's Jewish opponents probably argued that entrance into God's covenant is by grace. This was the common Jewish belief in that they were chosen by God to be a part of His people by making them Jews in the first place. They were born into it. They were God's elect. But remaining in the covenant, they thought, would be maintained by keeping the law. So God could put you in, but now you've got to keep yourself in. Those Jews then who respond appropriately to God's grace through keeping the law would be saved. The biblical view, Paul's view, is both quite similar and at the same time very different. It agrees that entrance into the covenant of God is by grace alone. But he insists that the decisive reason for one's entrance into the people of God, into the church, is God's unconditional election. Obedience to the law is not then an additional requirement, as though we add something to God's work in salvation. But instead, obedience to God is the result of the Holy Spirit's powerful work in those He has already saved to the full. See, they sound quite close. Both have God doing the work of salvation, and both require obedience. But one says that God saves you, now you keep yourself saved, you're continuing to do that work of salvation by keeping God's commands. The other says God has saved you to the full. The result of that, if you believe that grace alone gospel, is that you will walk obedience to His commands as a symptom of that. So they're very, very close, but very, very far away. One is the life-saving, transformative gospel of Jesus Christ, and the other is death. In fact, Paul will go so far as to say that the only true obedience in human beings is a result of God-given faith, their union with Christ, and the activity of the Holy Spirit. As those enslaved to sin, we are completely devoid of this ability in our own selves. So even as God saves, that we can't then in ourselves be the ones who keep ourselves saved. If that were reliant on us, we would all ultimately fail. None of us can string together a sufficient number of days of faithfulness that it would matter. But God saves to the full. One of the things I love about Romans is that Paul keeps on anticipating the obvious questions, the questions that are going to come up. So because of this grace alone gospel, he continues uh, verse 5 to 8, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? This is sometimes what we call the problem of sin, but this is the immediate response to this grace alone gospel is that, wait a second, if God's the one who does all the saving, 
And I don't do any of the saving, but it's up to him. How can he hold me accountable? I mean, if he doesn't make me righteous, that's his fault, isn't it? Do you see how this follows? This question just makes sense. This is follow the logic sense and, and ignore what God has said, but follow human reasoning. So that's why Paul says, I speak in a human way. I speak like a dumb human rather than the righteous and holy God. What shall we say? God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. So uh, offended with Paul's position on human inability, his opponents protest. If, if human corruption in sin is so complete that we Jews can do nothing to contribute to our own salvation, and the only way that anyone can be saved is by God's divine choice alone, how can God hold us accountable? If our sin, which you say we cannot escape ourselves, leads to God's righteousness being displayed and Him receiving even more glory, then how can you preach that God will hold us accountable for our sins? That's unfair. This is the argument of, of Paul's enemies. Their conclusion is that in Paul's theology, God is the one who is unrighteous. Even as he writes these allegations, Paul is quick to apologize for such a blasphemous question. I, I speak like a human does. The fact that our sin leads to God's righteousness being displayed and Him receiving glory can never lead us to the conclusion that we should not be held accountable for our sin. To think in such a way is to call into question God's right to judge the world at all. Their accusation continues, verse 7, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? There is a clear teaching in Scripture that God is fully able to bring good out of your evil. We, we think especially of Joseph's brothers of whom he said, Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And this is one of the more obvious times. It happens hundreds of times in the Bible, if not more, that, that people sin, do evil things, and God just keeps on working it to His glory. Read Judges, hey? You just, it's one disobedient, rebellious person after another, and God using it for His glory. R.C. Sproul invited us to consider that God brought the redemption of the world through the treacherous act of Judas Iscariot. Can Judas then stand at the judgment seat and say, God, give me a great reward because, you know, no one has ever done such a kindness to the human race than I. I delivered Jesus to be crucified, and if it wasn't for me, there would be no atonement. So what do I get? What's my reward? I brought about this good through my evil. <laughs> of course not. There, there is no basis upon which to claim a reward from God for such wickedness. His condemnation at the hands of God is perfectly just in spite of the fact that God is able to overcome His evil. It is an irrational distortion of truth to conclude that because God's righteousness is enhanced indirectly by our unrighteousness that we can continue to do evil that good may come. You see, we fall so quickly into these irrational distortions. 
It makes sense to us. You know, even as I read the question, it's like, yeah, how can God hold us accountable? That, that enemy of the apostles, right, God, answer that question for us. Answer us that one. How can you hold us accountable in our sin? Like many today, Paul's opponents took this beautiful truth about God that he is saving wicked sinners and that he can take what is evil and use it to accomplish what is good and then they twist it. They accuse Paul of libertinism, which, which means to teach people that they're free to do whatever they please since they are under grace. They're lawless. That since people do nothing to gain their own salvation, once they are saved, they can live however they please. This is what they're accusing Paul of. And, and Paul knows this is wrong. This is why he calls it slander. So when they accuse Paul's gospel of saying, live however you please because God saved you by grace, he calls that slander. That's not what his gospel calls us to. They were essentially assuming that Paul's gospel ended with Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, rather than continuing on to verse 10. Let's read Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so they would assume that Paul ended here, but it doesn't. It continues, verse 10, for we are his worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Created for good works that God has already predestined, prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. So when God saves somebody, He has saved them for a purpose, and He will be successful in that purpose of making that person walk in righteousness. As Paul makes clear, especially in Ephesians, God does not just save people from His wrath. He also transforms them so that they can live a life that is pleasing to Him, a life of good works. Those who are saved despite their sin will never continue in their sin. Even if our past sins do magnify God's glorious grace because He saved someone so terrible like me, for one who claims to be saved by God to then continue in ongoing sin would only bring shame to the one who has saved them and named them and called them. And it would call into question whether these things truly had taken place and whether they ever had truly embraced the biblical gospel that not only justifies but also sanctifies. God does not only save us, but He makes us righteous. If Paul really were preaching such a gospel, then he really would have something to be ashamed about in the message he proclaimed. And this is why in Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed. That is the exact opposite of the gospel he preached. A gospel that called Jews and Gentiles alike to the obedience of faith. Now, as happens more often in the Bible than I personally like, Paul doesn't even respond to the accusation here. This theme is brought up again in Romans 9.19 where the question is repeated, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And, and Paul's answer is, who are you, a man, to question God? It's not what my intellect wants to hear. Who... 
Who am I to question God? I was talking earlier today about the book of Job, which is all about the question of why do righteous people suffer? Why can a good person suffer? And the answer, after like a really long book with lots of different ideas about why that might be, the final answer is, who are you to question God? I, I, some things God just declares this is the way they are, and we do not get enough information to parse it all out ourselves. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Rather than to provide a reasoned response, Paul fires back with intensity. Their condemnation is just. If, if you want to see vitriol in the Scripture, if you want to see someone really let someone else have it verbally, look to Jesus and His apostles when it comes to those who distort the gospel and lead others astray those who prevent others from entering the kingdom of God with a uh, false or twisted gospel. Jesus says, Matthew 18, 6, But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Better to have a great big stone tied to your neck and to be drowned than the true reality of the judgment of Christ on those who cause his own people to sin. Paul writes Galatians 1, 6-9, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Those who proclaim a different gospel are accursed, anathema, which means devoted to destruction. It's to say that they are damned. Those who distort the truth of the gospel will have to answer to God Himself and deserve condemnation for the harm they cause to God's people. Paul is so passionate about defending the genuine gospel against pretenders as we should be as well. Because it is this grace alone gospel which will genuinely produce the obedience of faith. It is this gospel which would also break down the Jewish-Gentile divisions in Rome. Coming back to the, the historical context of Romans, there's Jews and Gentiles in the church and, and it's so important that there doesn't become two churches it's so important that it doesn't become seen like there's two peoples of God. And so Paul's other main purpose here, other than to defend his gospel and share the gospel of grace, is to make sure that these two people groups realize that they are actually one in Christ. And so it continues, verse 9, Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I had to preach on a longer passage than I wanted to this morning because these things connect uh, so intrinsically. Verse 1, what advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Is there an advantage? Oh, absolutely. Has it helped? No. For Paul's Jewish opponents, his gospel needed the addition of the law to make sense. To make sense, it needed the rules, and you've got to keep the rules to stay in the covenant community. They thought he should be teaching the Gentile followers of Jesus to live as Jews in order to be pleasing to God. This, of course, is nonsense, because Paul has already shown that though the Jews had been graciously given the benefit of the law, they had the oracles of God, they utterly failed to keep it. This left them no better off than the Gentiles who had not this benefit. And so, so the idea of keeping the law as a way for the Gentiles to live lives that were pleasing to God is ridiculous. The, the Jews have to admit that the way they were living their lives wasn't pleasing to God. Now to call Gentiles to live, they were, live the way they were and somehow that would be pleasing to God, it, it just doesn't make any sense. This is what Paul's saying. Even teaching the Gentiles to behave as Jews ought to was unnecessary because the gospel does what the law cannot. It is a life-transforming message that starts with faith and leads to a life of faith, a gospel that promotes and is the only means of living a life of holiness. You know, if, if you are struggling today, church, if any one of you struggles with slavery to sin, if you just feel like you cannot surmount the sin in your life, you're habitually sinning, you, you just can't get over it, it is because you have not believed this grace alone gospel. You may have believed some pretender. You may have believed some gospel and message but you have not entrusted yourself to Jesus alone in this grace alone gospel because it is a gospel that is the means to living a life of holiness. In Paul's gospel, Jews and Gentiles are now both in the same boat. Did the Jews have advantages? Absolutely. But now all are under sin. Notice he doesn't say that both Jews and Greeks are sinners. He has already said that at great length in chapter 2. He says here that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Being under sin is a way of saying that all people are weighted down with this terrible burden. A heavy obstacle that seeks to crush us, enslave us. Elsewhere, uh, Romans 6, 6, this is the word Paul uses. He calls, talks about us being enslaved by sin, crushed by sin, oppressed by sin. Like John Bunyan's imagery of the pilgrim's progress, all people stumble through life beneath the dreadful weight of sin, crushing them, controlling them as a vicious master. 
until such time as they come to the foot of the cross and meet the Savior who frees us from such oppression. The Bible teaches that all of mankind is born into and participates in sin so that every one of us is corrupted to the extent that it can be said that we are totally depraved. Not that we are utterly depraved in that we are always as wicked as it is possible to be, but that sin affects every aspect of our existence. Our minds, our wills, our bodies are affected by sin. Every dimension of our personality suffers at some point from the weight of sin that has infected the human race. As it is written, verse 10, no one is righteous No, not one. To prove his point, Paul provides a plethora of Old Testament quotations, uh, which Sproul called one of the most radical and extensive indictments of the corruption of man ever to appear in print. Nobody has said such mean things about humans before. No one is righteous. No, not one. In verses 10 to 12, Paul cites Psalm 14, 1 to 3, and Ecclesiastes 7, 20. Verse 13 contains exact quotes from Psalm 5, 9, and 140, verse 3. You can get these all from me later. (laughs) Verse 14 is an adaptation of Psalm 10, verse 7. And then verses 15 to 17 abridge and adapt Isaiah 59, 7 to 9. And finally, verse 18 is an exact citation from Psalm 36.1. The passages that Paul quotes from are not just simply about the sinfulness of all people. Like many other passages of Scripture, sometimes we miss the author's point because of what we bring to the passage or even the greater theological implications it might have. So this is a passage that we quite often look to to show just that everyone's a sinner. Yes, all have sinned, as Romans 3.23 will make clear shortly. But the point here is that the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles. Like the Gentiles, they are under sin. And so then to prove his point, Paul turns to the Old Testament passages, uh, the beginning of which refer to the enemies of Israel until Isaiah 59, 7 to 8 in verses 15 to 17, which in its original context applies to Israel as a whole. So what Paul's doing is he's, he's quoting scriptures talking about Gentile sin and then moves to scriptures talking about Israelite sin, placing both groups into the same category once again. Both are in the same boat. None is righteous. No, not one. Here, we we often call this the bad news that makes the good news good. We, We are often hesitant to communicate this bad news to unbelievers, but it is a necessary prerequisite to embracing the good news. You know, there is no good news without this bad news. Without this news, without this bad news, there's no ultimate need for a Savior. You might be telling people about a Savior, They have no purpose for your Savior if they do not know the bad news of their unrighteousness. No atonement is necessary. You might be telling them that the Savior died on the cross for you. It doesn't matter to them if they have not heard the bad news that makes the good news good. 
Without this bad news, Christianity would be exactly as every other world religion, teaching you how to actualize yourself and accomplish good for yourself. Only this kind of ultimate bad news will lead you to despair of yourself and turn in utter dependence to Jesus. For outside of union with Him, no human being can rightfully be called righteous. This is the temptation. I don't, I'm running out of time and I don't want to take too many bunny trails, but this is the temptation, right? You're sharing the gospel and, it, and you can say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus, Jesus has done so many great things for me. What is really hard about sharing the gospel is to share the whole truth. To actually say, and you need this. Here's why. Because there is a judgment. There is a wrath. It is a necessity, a necessary requirement for truthfully sharing the gospel in a way that will affect someone. It continues, verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Our lack of righteousness is so complete that it affects our understanding. We aren't even righteous enough to have the capacity to understand the fullness of what righteousness is. We, we don't even know what righteousness involves without the work of God. And if we don't understand true righteousness, then we do not even seek for God. Now, this, this statement has been the source of a lot of controversy and confusion, especially when it comes to people's uh, day-to-day experience. You know, the Bible says nobody seeks for God, but, you know, I know some people, they're not, they're not Christians yet, but I can tell they're seeking. They're seeking for God. I know, I know some people, they're, they're seeking for God. It, it causes confusion because we, we often talk about people seeking or searching for God. There are even those who claim themselves to be seeking after God, but are having some difficulty finding Him, as if God is playing hide-and-seek, hiding Himself from those who would search after Him. This, of course, is nonsense, For the whole of Scripture, from Eden to New Jerusalem, describes the great God who is searching for and seeking to save that which is lost. God is pursuing us while we are the fugitives fleeing from Him. And so if if we're saying in our minds, I'm seeking for God, I I just can't find Him. The reality is God is searching for you and you are fleeing. People may indeed be searching. But as Thomas Aquinas said, it is in this sort of seeking that man's sinfulness consists. For a man seeks the benefit of God, all while fleeing from the person of God. You know, we we say we're seeking God, but no one seeks God without God finding them first. All other attempts to seek are really to have the benefits of finding God without himself. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. With respect to righteousness, we have become useless. Without the call of God our Father, without the atonement of Jesus Christ, without the power of the Holy Spirit, we are unable to accomplish even one good work. We are are so corrupt 
that our sin infects even the best of our intentions and deeds. You see, church, when God examines an action, He considers it both in the terms of its external action and its internal motive. So we may do things that from an external perspective look to be fine actions, or we may refrain from doing some evil thing that we could have done, but that is only the half of it. That is just the external part. But the Bible teaches that a truly good deed is motivated by a heart that seeks to honor God, and by a heart that is loving God. Without the fear of God, it is impossible to please God. And so there is no action pleasing to God outside of one who fears Him. That's the internal dimension of the good deed. And so though my outward act may in fact conform to the external demands of the law, if they do not spring from a heart that loves God, they are instead motivated by selfish desire. I lived as a confessing Christian for 20 years, doing many things that people would call good works, But all of them were to serve myself, to seek what I wanted, to gain the reputation and control and comfort that I wanted. It continues to insult us in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This universal dimension of sin we're talking about is nowhere more evident than in our speech. Even our positive words are are so rife with deceit and flattery motivated by self-interest. The fracturing of truth is characteristic of fallen man, and this sets us apart from God who speaks no lie. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, That is, malice in the form of words is typical of human conversation. And then in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So, of course, human evil isn't confined to the tongue. It ultimately expresses itself in society. When human beings don't know peace with God, and don't know the God of peace, they aren't truly at peace with one another. And finally, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Here, at last, is the problem at the heart of humanity's habitual sin. Failure to fear the Lord is the foundational sin, deeply rooted in the heart of the wicked, that gives life to every other sin. The fear of the Lord is a central theme in the Bible from beginning to end. To fear the Lord is essentially to have a right understanding of God and a right attitude towards Him, which leads to right action. When we fear God, we do not fear man. When we fear God, we do not fear our circumstances. In fact, when we find ourselves fearing people, fearing what they will think, fearing if we do the right thing, what they'll do, and fearing our circumstance, it shows us that we are failing to fear the Lord. The purpose that we were created for is to fear and reverence God so that He is worshipped and esteemed as holy and majestic and mighty. Sin is, is at its center 
rejecting God and His rule over our lives. This, friends, is the bad news. Without the mighty work of God, we are hopeless and helpless to lift a finger to do anything to better our lot. We cannot do anything to leverage towards salvation. We're completely lacking in anything we can trade in, anything that we can uh, set towards this task. We're impotent to accomplish even one righteous act. Ephesians 2, 4, 10, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, we are in desperate need for the work of Your Spirit through Your Word to us. Transform us, I pray. May we hear the words that you have spoken, may we hear them and be obedient. I pray that your spirit this morning would apply Romans 3, 1 to 18 to us. There's no end to the stories we could tell, the connections we could make to truly understanding the depravity of man, our utter inability to do anything to help save ourselves. It's foundational to us. And God, I pray that you would now, as we go this week, build on that. That this truth about our utter inability would cause us to see you in a whole new light that your love would become magnified to us, that we would see the greatness of your love and the grace that you have shown us despite our complete inability. The more we see our sin, I pray that you would not cause us to despair, but cause us to rejoice in the great gift of your Son, the righteousness that you have wrought through faith the righteousness of Christ applied to your people, His work alone, not ours, that we would live in response to your goodness, that it would reorientate our lives this morning, I pray, 
That we would no longer go on with worldly ambitions and self-interest, but realizing that everything has been freely granted to us by this amazing grace, that we would walk forth from this place with a whole new trajectory of serving you and loving your people. Transform us, I pray, by the good news of your gospel that begins with these harsh words. In Jesus' name I pray for his glory. Amen.